Dispatch, we just arrived on scene, Highway 325. We see a bus versus a gravel truck. There's a head-on collision and a five-vehicle uh, pileup. There appear to be multiple casualties, uh, eight critical at least. We need the backup highway control. We need firefighters, the extrication equipment, and at least eight crews on an emergency run. Uh, our ETA is going to be at least 20 minutes. If you want to update the hospital, uh, they're going to need to be prepared for uh, multiple trauma incoming. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Do you think you'd know what to do in this scenario at your single coverage ED? I'm not sure I would. That's why the EM Cases team decided to cover the topic of disaster medicine. Because none of us felt we had a good handle on how we'd manage a situation like this. And we really should. You see, disaster medicine is really the universal subspecialty. Why? Well, because all physicians could be called upon to help their communities in times of crisis. As ED docs, we're particularly well-suited to take a lead in disaster response. I'd even go as far as to say, we should own this. So, to help us bridge the gap between the clinical medicine we know so well and the systems-level processes in disaster medicine, it's my pleasure and honor to have on the show three new guest experts. First, we've got Dr. Daniel Kolick from Hamilton, who's the chair of the Disaster Committee of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Dr. Lori Mazurek, who's the head of disaster response from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. And Dr. Josh Bizanson, fellow Canadian podcaster, the creator and host of the EPIC podcast, which stands for Emergency Preparedness in Canada. It's great to have you on the show, Josh. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. So in this episode, we're going to discuss some general approaches to various disasters. We're going to talk about how to use a hospital emergency plan. We're going to talk about understanding the concept of surge capacity and what you can do to help, how to triage mass casualties, how to safely evacuate an emergency department. We're going to talk about hazardous materials emergencies and decontamination principles, dealing with bioterrorism casualties, and key pitfalls in disaster response in general. So let's go back to the case that started off the the podcast. We've received this call about this bus versus gravel truck, five vehicle pileup that that opened up the podcast at the top here. So Dr. Mazurek, can you just run through for us your initial general approach to an incident like this? And then and then we'll get into the details. Well, certainly a gravel truck versus a bus plus five cars is a, a worrisome scenario. But I've learned from experience from the when Air France crashed in Toronto and they couldn't find passengers for an hour. Turns out all of them survived, but 10 hospitals activated their code orange expecting casualties. So the first thing you need to do is actually confirm that there are actually casualties. This isn't a slow motion minor fender bender. But while you're doing that, I think you want to huddle up with your team in the emergency department and sort of say there could be something big coming. Get the the nurses in charge, any other physicians in your group and any sort of team leaders that are in the department and share the information that you have while you're trying to confirm that. 
if you get more information that looks like you are going to get a surge of uh, trauma casualties, I think you have to immediately notify the administrator on call who then activates your hospital disaster plan, which is also called a code orange. But a lot of people need to be notified. The OR needs to know. They have to stop elective surgery. The critical care needs to know. The lab needs to know. Radiology, blood bank all need to know that this is going down because they have to conserve resources and stop any non-essential services from continuing while you're gathering information and prepare for that. Okay, so so to start off, you're getting a team huddle going in your emergency department and you're getting people on the phone uh, to get the key administrative people aware of what's going on so that they can get their resources activated as well. Yeah, and it's actually, uh, it's funny, you think about activation, it's actually deactivation. What you really want to do is deactivate all the non-essential services. And by doing that, you create capacity. So in the emergency department, you're going to go immediately to your department and say, who shouldn't be here? Who doesn't need to be here? Who can do without treatment in the next sort of 12 to 24 hours while we deal with the surge? And it's really a deactivation of, of non-essential service. So you create capacity for essential services. Great concept. I love that. So it's really about deactivation, not activation. And then once you have the confirmation, then you really have to activate your code orange. And it really isn't an all or none response. It's sort of a cascade response, because if you immediately call in everybody who could possibly be breathing to help you actually create more problems. So it has to be a staged sort of well thought out process that you adapt as the flow of patients comes in. You may only get two patients as opposed to 200. So it's a very adaptive process. And I think if you try to do all or none, it's a recipe for failure and you actually cause problems downstream in the, in the system. So once it's activated, you get try to get accurate numbers from EMS to find out who's coming to you. You will want to know who's going elsewhere. So you could probably try to get them to take patients elsewhere, especially if you're a trauma center, but you, you really have to focus on who's coming to you. Again, huddling up with your team. And there, there are a number of uh, mnemonics out there. Since I hate mnemonics, I thought I should come up with one I at least like. So I have one, TT Dad, and the sad state of patient care, what you actually do to adapt to the situation. So TT Dad and sad. Okay, so TT dad, what does the first T stand so for? So T is triage. And there is infinite arguments about what you should do for triage. And I'll tell you, I've run about 30 disaster exercises where the full emerges staffed and they, they know they're going to get a disaster and they have a chance to study, start and salt and all the other types of triage systems that Daniel will talk about later. But not one of them has been able to do it for more than 10 minutes. They abandon them. They always default to what they know. So knowing that, I'm suggesting people use CTAS. CTAS 1s and 2 are the only ones that come into the emergency department. Ironically, it's red and yellow is how they're color-coded, and that happens to make orange. So think code orange, think CTAS 1 and 2. Nothing else comes into your emergency department. So when you think about this your daily practice, wouldn't you like those 3s and 5s to go elsewhere? Well, now is your chance to make 3s and 5s go elsewhere. So you may keep them in their waiting room. If you have a family practice unit that can take it, or an auditorium or someplace where they can gather with some medical uh, staff that can assess them in more detail, you divert them. But you take ones and twos and only until you actually know. So that's T for triage. 
The second T is treat. Tell us about that. Yeah. So you're only going to look at treating the ones and twos. The threes to fives are going to go elsewhere. They'll wait. They may get treated by the hospital. They may get treated by somebody else, but they're not going to be in the emergency problem until they actually have capacity to do that. That's probably not going to be in the early stages of the disaster. It will be sometime down the line. So if you have family practice, if you have residents, you have other people who can look after these patients, you send them to an area where they can be assessed by them, determine whether they need any treatment now. It no longer is the emergency department problem. Then there's D, which is discharge, which is really kind of out of order. It's what you're actually doing to create capacity. You have to make an immediate determination about who you're going to discharge, go through the department, but the whole hospital has to do that. The challenge may be that you can't send them right out onto the streets or they don't have ways to leave the hospital, but you have to discharge them and hold them somewhere while they wait for a means to actually leave the hospital. Okay, so that's T for triage, the second T for treat, the D is for discharge and our TT DAT. DAT, uh, yeah. Next is A. A is admit. Any of those admitted patients that you have in your apartment, they now go to the floors. They become their hall patients. The last one is D, which is demand the rest of the hospital become involved. So they have to become aware. They have to open their plans for their participation in the Code Orange. And the very last thing is sad. It's really not sad, but it's probably what we should be doing every day to be more efficient, which is spend, well, this might sound bad, but spend less time per patient because you're going to have to see a lot of them. Ask for less tests, because you need to do things more quickly, and most of the tests we often order are not of value, so you have to be extremely selective, and you have to know when to do nothing, meaning either it's so minor that you can't spend the time with them now, or it's so major that if you invested blood and resources and you consumed a lot of resources for a single patient, you may compromise the outcome of other patients. That's a very tough skill and really falls in the hands of the most senior physicians that might be in the department at the time. Okay, great. So the sad part of it is really how to be efficient when you're, quote, overwhelmed with patients. You just don't have the resources. You should be spending a bit less time with each patient since you don't have the time. Ask for less tests. You know, normally we might do some crazy sort of internal medicine workup, but of course there's no time for that in these situations. And then the D is don't do anything. Right. And know when that's the right thing to do. Right. Got it. For the patients who, who don't need help right now. Got it. All right. So that's the TT dad sad mnemonic on your general approach to disasters. Before we get onto the details of all of that, get more into the, into the case, Dr. Kolek, could you just tell us about what disaster medicine really is? I mean, how, how do you define disaster medicine? Well, you said something quite interesting when you started. It's the universal subspecialty, not just because anybody could get called to do it, but disaster medicine is, in our world, the ultimate team sport. It is the response to an event that, by definition, is going to outstrip the resources you have. If there was a motor vehicle accident in downtown Toronto with 10 casualties, that's not going to evoke a disaster plan. But if that same event takes place near a community hospital with limited resources, for them, that's a disaster. So by definition, a disaster is something that's going to outstrip the resources of whatever facility is responding. And because of that, it becomes a team sport because everybody has to carry the load, not only within the facility, but you always have to think of who else you can collaborate with 
beyond your facility. So I, I agree 100% with Lori that one of the first steps you would do if you were invoking a disaster uh, plan was to make sure your administration knows so that you're working with some support. But to step back, a disaster is anything that goes beyond what you can handle. And disaster medicine is preparing for that and being able to cope with that and initiating the plan to respond to that when there's a need. Now, there's a saying that disaster response starts the day before. Because everything Laurie said in her response is predicated on the fact that people have some sort of a plan. When you call administration, you assume that they have a plan. When you call the wards, you assume that they have a way to take those patients that are going to go up to their hallways. So some sort of plan has to start the day before. And the first phase in what's called the disaster cycle is planning and mitigation. So you look at what your risks are going to be. That involves doing some sort of a formal risk assessment, hopefully formal. You see what you can do to mitigate those risks. If there's something that you know you can prevent from happening, that is the best vaccination you can have against a disaster. And for those things that have either a high probability of happening or have a high impact, if they do happen, you develop a plan for them and you exercise that plan. That's step one. That's the planning and mitigation phase. The second part is the response phase. When something happens, and eventually something is going to happen because disasters are common, the only question is the when, it's not the if, is you execute that plan as you prepared it, obviously trying to nuance it to the event as it's happening. And then once you've done executing the plan is the recovery phase. And in the recovery phase, what you want to do is you want to restore your previous functionality. And at that time, you review what happened and how can you do it better so that your next time going into planning and mitigation, you are stronger than before because you've learned something from the disaster. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, just resuscitations in general. You know, we should prepare for our resuscitations. We actually just did a whole podcast on uh, a mnemonic, Lori's favorite. Um, <laughs> called Prepare for All the Human Factors and Practical Tips on Preparing for an Airway. And it's not so much different. You, you got to prepare and then you've got the whole process and then debriefing afterwards so that you can learn better for next time. Absolutely. But I would emphasize that whereas most other kinds of medicine, medical encounters start with the patient encounter, here, the exercising has to start way beforehand because it's a complex response with many people. So you really have to make sure you've done your exercising and planning way ahead of time. You can't wing it. Yeah, and you know, I really agree with the idea of the deactivation opposed to activation because the reality is in North America, we're never going to have a true scarcity of healthcare resources. Rather, it's a relative scarcity. That means that things just aren't properly allocated at the right place at the right time. So one of the first things you know, I would do in, in a true MCI situation is to decide who's going to sleep. Because the reactive thing to do initially is to scramble all of your resources, to have lots of people responding, get all of your senior physicians working in the department. And what you want to do is switch from the reactive phase to the proactive phase. And because it's a disaster, you're always going to have that initial reactive phase. 
there's chaos, you want to bring order to that chaos. So you have to be the person to think one step ahead. This incident's probably going to last more than eight hours or more than one shift. So who's going to take that second shift? If we have all of our resources in the first shift and everyone wants to be there for the exciting part of the disaster up front, everyone's going to be tired after 20 hours or however long they go. So you need to decide up front who's going to bed, who's going to be that second wave, who do I deactivate first? And if we look at the experience, especially in North America, for some of the biggest disasters like 9-11, there's actually not been a true scarcity of resources. If you see the pictures of patients being unloaded from 9-11, you'll see there's ambulances surrounded by healthcare workers, physicians, everybody, they come in from home off call, tons of resources up front. So trying to get that initial planning and in early, it helps us switch from reactive to proactive. And talking about vulnerabilities for disasters, you've touched on overcapacity, what are some of the other factors that predispose a health system to being more vulnerable to a medical disaster situation? Yeah, I'd like to think of the health system like as if it was a human being, a living system, because it, we are part of it, and so we are living creatures. So the comorbidities is, is what I call the risk for disaster. Overcapacity, for sure, is one we usually think about as emergency department and overcrowding. But there are units, hospital units, ICUs, dialysis, they're at 100, over 100% capacity too as well, which contributes certainly to our overcrowding. Tunnel vision. I think I see this more as my experience as an orange physician where I have to, Ontario Air Ambulance, and I have to look at multiple patients that need to be transferred to higher levels of care. Every physician thinks their patient is the only one that should get the care. They're trained and conditioned to advocate for their physician or their patient, sorry. But what they don't see is their patient is really third or fourth in the list, and they don't understand the whole system and where their patient actually belongs. And if they would have a better knowledge of all the patient's needs, I think they would actually be better clinicians. They would be better able to support the expectations in a realistic way of their patient. And a lack of fitness in general. When was the last time you ever exercised? I should hate to admit it, but I don't know when the last time we did a code orange in the hospital at Sunnybrook. We certainly have done them through simulations elsewhere. The living system, the warning signs of an impending disaster, dysarthria or aphasia. The people just are not aware, situationally aware of what's happening around them that could predispose them to a disaster. They don't recognize a disaster when it unfolds, SARS being a perfect example of that and asymmetric weakness, you're getting a stroke. So there will always be a hospital region that will be crippled first and fail. Knowing how to recognize those signs and trying to do something about it is probably the first step to mitigating or one of the steps to mitigate it. So I like that analogy with a stroke. So the dysarthria or aphasia is kind of this inability to communicate the situational awareness, which is a big thing in, uh, in emergency medicine now, and then asymmetric weakness where you know that first hospital that gets hit is really going to suffer the biggest blow. If everyone's aware of that, then things can run more smoothly. Uh, Dr. Kolick, you have a comment about that? I would just add that under the dysarthria, because I like this way of laying it out, we also have a weakness of communicating outwards. In today's world of social media, we should be able to tell patients not to come to us in a disaster. We should be able to redirect patients easily and quickly and, and try and decompress the load before it even gets to our door. And I think that we really lack that capacity for external communication. Uh, our public relations departments basically deal with the odd news communique, but they don't prepare for this. I don't know of any hospital 
that has the public relations department having a proactive plan for communication as opposed to, for example, uh, in Europe or the Middle East, where hospitals will have dormant websites that they will activate instantly with their code orange, with emergency phone numbers, with advisories, and the public knows to contact them. One of the things that changes in a disaster is we have to think outside of the hospital and avoid those silos of operating independently because it's really going to be a community-wide effort. So we have to realize our strengths and limitations and maybe, you know, partnering with another agency who's more effective at mass communications and that sort of thing is going to be the, the best option. Let's review what we've learned so far about disaster medicine. Your initial approach to mass casualties should involve four steps. Number one, confirm that there are, in fact, multiple emergency casualties. Number two is a team huddle. Share the information that you have with your team. Number three, notify the hospital administrator who will activate your hospital-wide disaster code in Canada. That's a code orange so that all departments can halt all non-essential services. They can conserve resources and prepare for the surge. And number four, deactivate non-essential services in order to create capacity. So that's the idea that rather than activating services, which seems like it kind of makes intuitive sense, we should be deactivating services that aren't essential to disaster management. So once you've confirmed the details of the disaster, had your team huddle, notified the hospital administrator to activate a disaster code and deactivate non-essential services, it's time for TT-DAD-SAD. So, the first T's are triage and treat. Current patients in the ED who do not require active essential treatment in the next 12 to 24 hours should be moved out of treatment areas. For new patients, only the sickest patients... In Canada, that would be CTAS 1 and 2, or by the SALT criteria, which we're going to talk about soon. It's also the 1s and 2s. Those patients are triaged to treatment areas. All the other patients should remain either in the ED waiting room or be moved outside the ED to a part of the hospital where they can be attended to by medical staff that are not actively treating those really sick patients in the ED. The first D of the TTDAD is discharge. And of course, normally we discharge patients at the end, but we have to be thinking about discharge right from the beginning. Make an immediate determination about which patients are safe to be discharged from the ED, either home or to another part of the hospital. This starts before people arrive and continues throughout, as this is how you create capacity. Next is the A of the TTDAD, and that stands for admit. Any patients requiring admission in the ED go expeditiously to hospital floors, and if necessary, become those floors hall patients if no beds are available. All hospital floors should have a plan for surge capacity. And the second D is for demand. Demand that the rest of the hospital becomes involved. All departments need to open their plans for active participation in the disaster code. And finally, it's the SAD part of the TTDAD. SAD mnemonic, spend less time per patient and be extremely selective when ordering tests and blood products so as not to overwhelm the lab, the blood bank, and the radiology departments. You want to expedite patient care as efficiently as possible. There'll be a lot of patients who require little or no attention. It's important to know 
when not to do anything for patients who don't require immediate treatment so that you can efficiently treat those who do require emergency treatment. So we've covered the initial general approach and TT dad sad. It's also important to understand the factors that predispose the health system to the vulnerabilities of a medical disaster. In other words, the disaster comorbidities. So that's when we can recognize these problems early on and take action to fix them. First is overcapacity. Now, overcapacity is a chronic problem, not only in most EDs, but also ICUs, medical and surgical units. The more overcrowding in these units prior to a disaster, the more vulnerable your system is. After overcrowding, the next notion is that of tunnel vision. So the individual healthcare provider on a typical clinical day only needs to know how to care for each patient that's assigned to them. And in advocating for our patients, we expect that our patients will receive all the resources that they need. So this kind of tunnel vision can be detrimental in a disaster situation, which requires a much broader knowledge of all the patient's needs and an understanding of how to prioritize patients given the limited resources. Now, the next thing was this great analogy to stroke. So knowledge of the warning systems and situational awareness of an impending disaster can be thought of by analogy in terms of stroke symptoms. So dysarthria or aphasia may set in, for example. And this is the inability to communicate situational awareness to both medical staff and the public when a critical incident begins to unfold. And then the other stroke symptom is asymmetric weakness. There will always be a hospital or region that will be crippled first and fail. So knowing how to recognize these vulnerabilities in our system and the stroke symptoms we've been talking about and taking action to remedy them is important in mitigating the disaster. All right. Next up in the podcast, we're going to discuss triaging in more detail and use the SALT triage algorithm to help us along. I want to go back to the TT dad mnemonic. The first T is triage and talk a little bit more about triage. Dr. Kolick, we've got many casualties here in this pileup. In this case, we're talking about, you know, all at the same time. First, let's talk about at the scene triaging and then about the ED triaging. So how will you manage so many patients at once at, at this scene? Triage at the scene is there to determine who needs to be evacuated first. You need to keep in mind that entrapment issues aside, those who are going to be left at the scene will typically be the sicker patients because often the less sick will have self-evacuated. And we need to come back to that when we talk about the emergency department triage. There are a few ways of doing this. One is called the uh, start and one is called the salt. I'm going to talk about both and I'll explain the limitations. STAR triage stands for simple triage and rapid treatment, is accepted everywhere as sort of a standard. It has some limitations. It does go one person at a time, and it starts with airway breathing circulation and then mental status or airway breathing circulation cognition. If you walk up to a patient and if they're not breathing despite basic airway maneuvers, you consider them dead and you move on. If they are breathing and you get over 30 breaths a minute, then you consider them immediate. If you're under 30 breaths a minute and they have no pulse, you consider them immediate. And if they're breathing and have a pulse and they can't follow basic commands, you still consider them immediate. The next stage down are tagged as yellow, which is sort of uh, delayed care. 
And it's really those two groups because the greens or the very deferrables will probably have left by that point. It's a pretty straightforward system. It does require you do one patient at a time. What it doesn't give you is the ability to deal with a whole group all at once, which is where the SALT triage, which stands for Sort, Assess, uh, Life-Saving Maneuvers and Treat, is perhaps a better system. And I'll step aside for an anecdote. Years ago during the tsunami, there were plane loads of evacuees who were flown to England. And I spoke to one of the paramedics who stepped onto the plane and had to figure out who do we take off the plane first? So they went on the public address system and said, anybody who can hear me, raise your hands. And sea of hands goes up and he says, okay, everybody put down your hands unless the person next to you has not raised their hand. And then he had a few hands of the people sitting right next to the sickest patients. So what the SALT system does is it sorts people out into sort of walkers, uh, waivers, and those who are still. If you can walk away, direct your patients to a certain treatment area for the ambulatory less ill. If you can wave, which means you're alert, but you aren't ambulatory, give them some assistance, move them to that area. If you're still, if you're unresponsive, you are going to be the sicker patients. And to those patients, you go through and do essentially similar to the, the start method. You assess, you do some life-saving maneuvers. Their definition is anything under a minute. So tourniquet, needle decompression, auto-injectors, if it's a chemical event, and so on. And then you move them to definitive treatment. So in the field, the idea is to do a really quick sorting of the largest numbers you can, you can to figure out who you have to get out of there fast. And that then leads us to a whole different ballgame, which is at the department. I think the SALT is vastly superior to start. And having, uh, again, run so many disaster exercises where I've thrown 150 patients at a at an emergency part to see what they can do in three hours, they all abandon start. The main reason is they can't count under pressure. And when you have a lot of people in front of you, they just want to know sick or not sick, and they move them in that way. So they, they again, default to what they know. If someone's unconscious, that's obviously a one. So I think SALT by far is the superior of the two, although START and JumpStart and all these other similar ones are more widely promoted, which is unfortunate because I definitely agree with Daniel. I think, oh, I think we're agreeing again, Daniel, quite shocker, wow. but I think salt is, <laughs> salt is definitely the way to go. And I think he, even in the emergency department, it would work. Like a, I was saying, see tests three to five, they're probably ambulatory. Walk them away. Anybody who can't, they're going to be your ones and twos or your reds and yellows, which the color still matches with CTAS, which is what the nurses will default to under pressure. All right. Well, we'll have the salt and the start algorithms on, on the website. So that's triaging at the scene. Let's move on to triaging in the emergency department. How is triaging in the emergency department different than triaging at the scene? Well, if we remember that the goal of triage at the scene is to prioritize evacuation, the goal of triage in the hospital is to prioritize treatment and use of resources. That brings me back to the comment I made earlier about self-evacuation, that the healthiest people will be leaving the scene on their own. If we think back to the Tokyo sarin disaster in the 90s, when there was a release of sarin gas in the subway, 640 patients converged on one hospital, St. Luke's, in 90 minutes. That number boggles my mind. 640 patients in 90 minutes, and of those, 541 arrived independent of VMS. 
Patients will show up on their own, and the ones who arrive up front are, by definition, the least ill. So you cannot let them consume your resources. So your triage at the, at the hospital is designed to divert those patients who do not need you uh, on an immediate basis away from your emergency department and preserve your emergency department for your ones and twos. People do what they do normally when they're under stress as well. To try and get somebody under stress to do something different is very difficult and they will fall back on their normal patterns of behavior. So in the department, we're going to end up labeling people CTAS, uh, one, two, and so on. And the nurses who will be doing the triaging uh, or a physician doing the triaging will have to fall back on things they know. So I would think at the hospital, you do CTAS, ones and twos go into the department Anybody else goes elsewhere, and you need to find define ahead of time what that elsewhere is, family practice unit, auditorium, whatever, and have staff there who are perhaps of a lesser caliber, uh, not to be insulting, but you don't need to do resuscitation there. You want to keep your staff who can do resuscitation in your emergency department and your first aid staff, your medical students, and so on, will be in your area for the ambulatory walking wounded. So the idea is really, I divide them into sick, not sick. The truly sick come into the emergency department. Everybody else gets triaged away. And you can re-triage them. They may change. Someone can turn around and say, this patient who's been sitting in, you know, in the auditorium is now decompensated. Bring him back. All right, we may think that. But at least initially, you want to preserve your resources. Because if you have that swarm of patients come through and fill your department, and then the first patient who's being ventilated arrives, and you have nowhere to put them, you've goofed. Got it. I've heard people describe disaster triage like visine. You're going for the red and trying to get it out. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great analogy. All right. I've heard the, the term surge capacity thrown around a lot. What exactly is meant by, by surge capacity and how, how do you manage surge capacity? Well, it's, it's really uh, increasing the number of patients per staff ratio. So if uh, ICU is supposed to be an easiest example, if it's one-to-one -one nursing, then it's going to be one to two patients or one to four patients. And they have a, they try to limit the, the amount they can expand. Physicians would then do the same. So whatever they would normally have, say one physician for four nurses and four nurses for 16 patients, if that's your norm, you're going to expand it. So you're either doubling or tripling. And what you try to do to fill the gaps in with that is to add learners if you have them or other sorts of people who have some sort of medical skills. The other thing is monitor. So most of what you're trying to do once the patient care has been delivered is to monitor for any decompensation. Or if they improve, then you can move them to an area that doesn't require quite as much resources. I look at it as three things. Every patient's going to need a bed or a location, staff, and some sort of consumable resources. In surge capacity, what you need to do is see how you can increase all three of those and the, the ratio of those to the patient. So for example, can you add beds? Do you have hallway space? If you can't add beds, what are your alternates for beds? Can you move people to chairs? If you can't do that, who can you not bring into the hospital at all or move elsewhere? So it's to defer treatment. With regards to staff, can you increase the ratio of patients to staff? Who can you bring in who can act as an alternate uh, for a staff at a, who's a different level of training. 
with regards to consumable resources? What can you stockpile ahead of time that you'll be able to pull on or make sure you can find if you need it on an urgent basis? But those three components are what you're going to run through when you see patients. And if you have a surge, you're going to run through them a lot more. Your capacity comes by doing less. So you you do like only a group and screen. You don't care what the hemoglobin is. You do only a beta. You don't do the full panel of 20 that you might normally do. Like I need the CBC and all this blah, blah, blah. You need maybe one thing or two things in the lab and the lab runs those specific things. Same with blood bank. Now, instead of giving the automatic, you got to watch where from teaching hospitals and, and residents might do the, uh, we're going to do code omega on everybody, which is one to one to one, which we can't even do it at the best of times because it's not that easy. You may be going to get lucky if you get a patient to get one or two units that might, you might have otherwise been giving four units or or more, you're going to be doing more with less. And I think search capacity is really about doing more with less to a point that you know that you're going to cross where you do so little that someone's going to die. You're going to have to make that decision at what point are you going to let people that you would otherwise try to resuscitate die in order to preserve those resources. And that's a very difficult line that none of us uh, want to cross because we're always invested in that dying patient. And that's just our natural gestalt. But this is now thinking about, wow, this person's going to take 20 units, but these five people need those 20 units to live. Do I give this one person a chance to live and these other five die? We can't do that. And that's where situational awareness and, and all those types of things become important. So thinking about it just in terms of human resources is obviously not enough. But Daniel brings up the importance of how you do more with less and distribute less, but are still effective in at least temporizing them so that they'll live long enough. So when more resources are either delivered to you that you can then give them to them, but you're keeping them alive long enough to be able to get that additional care. Yeah, it's interesting that I think over the years, it's especially important for learners. You know, when, when I started in a single coverage community ED, I remember times when it was two in the morning, we had a four bed resuscitation room and there'd be four patients that came in at once. And it was sort of like a mini disaster. You had to make some quick decisions. You were the only one there and you had to prioritize. I know in the hospital that I work in now at North York General, we have massive coverage. We have tons of staff. We have lots of nurses, we have lots of residents and students, and I think it's in a way to the detriment in terms of our training that there's really no need to triage patients anymore as a, as a physician. They're kind of already triaged, and there's so many people, one doc to one patient, you can spend 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour with a really sick patient. You don't have to worry about the rest of the department so much. I'm coming to work there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that luxury. So I guess, you know, another way of saying it is to the learners out there, try and find those opportunities where you're, you're challenged, you know, at a single coverage place where you're the only one there. And, you, you know, that's how you really learn emergency medicine is by working at a place where you are challenged or when you need to triage patients, where you might need to cut corners and try and prioritize what the important things are. It's all fine and dandy to say that different people have different responsibilities in a disaster situation, but let's say you've got three senior staff docs on in a given emergency department and a disaster is unfolding. How do you decide kind of who takes the lead? You're having your team huddle, let's say. How does that work exactly? Like someone, I imagine that someone's actually got to take the lead. 
Is there a process by which that happens or, or how does that work? Yeah, so the same team dynamics that we understand work well in a resuscitation that we're used to, those are scalable and those human factors work at a systems level as well. So having a clear incident commander and in disasters, we use something called the incident command system or the incident management system is a way of organizing your resources and organizing the lines of reporting and lines of authority effectively. So you have you avoid things like duplication of effort. You have good span of control, meaning that one person's not trying to manage 100 people. Um, and this system allows us to scale up quickly and and make those those impromptu, spontaneous teams function well. I think that people under stress will do what they always do. And what you want to do is have the best leader who maybe has the most experience. So it would be logical that one of the three of us would be somebody who would take that lead situation because we would understand what a Cody Orange is. We would understand who you communicate to. And, and so you want whoever has that experience to take that lead position. I think they'll self-declare and I think everybody would quite happily abdicate to them because most people want to do clinical care. They're not necessarily system-oriented or understand all the facets of a, of a disaster response. I think it would naturally unfold and it might be one or two docs, but it could be only one doc and trying to do it all. And the other thing to remember is probably the nurse in charge, if they have that term, but whoever's the boss nurse is probably in many respects, a bigger team leader than even the physician for the simple reason they control a bigger group. And that clinician often needs to provide some hands-on care, which can be very difficult to control the situation if you have to. But if they need hands to save lives, it's hard not to put your hands in there. And what you're really looking for is somebody who can stand back and be the coordinator of it all. That's a real challenge because you're going to see somebody right in front of you and you're going to naturally want to step in and, and to try to help. And I think the early stages of this is extremely difficult, doesn't fall into that easy slaughtable, everybody does this type of thing, I think that they will adapt. And as more people come forward, then that person can step back and actually do less hands-on. If I was to turn around to my charge nurse, as good as my charge nurse is, and I have some wonderful charge nurses in the current hospital I'm at, and tell them to try and manage this, they won't know how. They will turn to me and say, what do I do? Which means I won't have the luxury of doing clinical care. In an ideal situation, had we practiced this, then I could step back because I could turn around and say, you are now doing X and I'm going to deal with Y. The problems of how to manage a disaster aren't unique to healthcare. Other industries, every industry faces disasters and, and people are called to, to act outside of their what's usual for them and, and what's up to their day-to-day -day, uh, responsibilities. The difference is other industries have adopted disaster planning and emergency response and, and incorporated incident command type systems into their day-to-day -day much earlier than healthcare has. So we're kind of late adopters uh, when you look at kind of global disaster response in other industries. But it certainly, I think, is coming. And one of the first things you'll see in most hospital disaster plans is reference to these incident management systems and incident command systems. So certainly as, as a learner and a new clinician, it's a useful system to become aware with and become familiar with because, again, we have to start operating not just in our silo. We're going to be operating with other agencies, police departments, municipal official, officials, and they're all using this, this ICS or IMS system. So before we go on to the second case, I'd like to review the SALT triaging framework for you. 
So the SALT triaging framework, which our experts prefer, stands for sort, assess, life-saving maneuvers, and treat. So the way patients should be initially sorted is simply by dividing them up from the least sick to the sickest by those who can walk, they're the least sick, those who can wave, those are sort of the medium sick, and those who are still or who have obvious life threats. Next is assess. And this is where individual assessments of patients are done. Then there's life-saving maneuvers, essentially the ABCs. Remember that you shouldn't waste time with those patients who have a very low likelihood of survival given your particular resources. You should just move on to those patients who have a chance. And also it's key to understand that while the goal of triage in the field for mass casualties is to prioritize evacuation, the goal of triage in the ED is to prioritize treatment and user resources. And now on to the second case of a very topical subject, given the recent Texas flood and the rash of hurricanes in the Americas, natural disasters. It's been snowing hard for days, and the minor side of your ED is full of patients who've slipped on the ice. While you're examining a patient's ankle, you notice something dripping on your hand. You look up to see dark-colored water streaming from the ceiling. The trickle turns into a torrent as a pond starts to form in the middle of your department. Minutes later, the lights suddenly cut out, and the minor and intermediate areas of your department are in complete darkness, except for the glow from a few beeping IV pumps. So Dr. Masaryk, what would you do in this situation? Well, I've been there, only it wasn't in the uh, wintertime. It was in the summer. We uh, The roofers were uh, tarring the roof in the emergency department, and it was the weekend, and of course they weren't there. And we had the, an amazing thunderstorm with lots of rain, and there came the water down. The first thing I was worried about was actually getting electrocuted and moving people out of the way. We didn't actually know whether to activate a code orange or not because it was just our department. We weren't fully aware of what the risks were, but we thought water and electricity was never a good thing. So we did remember our environmental emergency medicine. But we did immediately get our administrator on call, who was supposed to know everything about everything with regards to emergency preparedness in the hospital, and decided to actually evacuate the entire emergency department because the roof that was leaking was over the entire department. So fortunately, we did have a plan to move everybody to day surgery, and it was a weekend, and it was fortunately also empty. Most of our materials are on carts, so it wasn't as hard to actually move patients. All the beds and everything were portable. So I don't know if that was planned. It just happened to be the way we were set up. And so we were able to evacuate the entire department. It was interesting, though, because we are a trauma center. Now, where do we do trauma. That was a little tricky and trauma did not want to leave the department even though there was some risks there. So if I recall correctly, I think they actually somehow made that area safe so that they could continue trauma there because they wanted that familiar space and they were able to continue trauma while the rest of the emergency moved to another part of the hospital. Wasn't nearly as difficult as we thought and Daniel would be proud to know that we did put out a public message through the media to say, don't come to us, and uh, also kept all ambulances away from us until we were able to determine whether it was actually safe to provide care where we were. Did reduce our numbers somewhat, but not probably as much as uh, people still know how to find us. Right. And Dr. Kolick, if you were in this situation where suddenly a torrent of water came pouring through the roof of your department, what other 
kind of tips and tricks can you tell our listeners about how to deal with a situation like that? Like the song goes, I look at it as, should I stay or should I go? So step number one, I ask myself, you know, how bad is this? Uh, is it contained? What is the extent of the problem? So that's sort of the what. And I look at the who, who's my patient load? If it's a power problem, you need to think of three people, three types of people, the ventilated, the paced, and those who are in the middle of procedures, who may be dependent on power for whatever's going on. And they need to get your first attention. Then I would look at the volume. I would look at how big the problem is. Do I need to actually leave the department or can I just shut down part of the department? If I have to leave, where am I going? Before I start planning an evacuation, I need to have a destination to go to. And if I have to go, how am I going to move the people and in what order? Because once again, to move certain types of patients, you'll need resources like the ability to ventilate. You'll need ambulances. Uh, so there are certain steps you'll have to take in terms of planning it out. And it may sometimes be wiser, at least until you have the other end ready to shelter in place until you know where you're going and how you're getting there. I would add to that that you raise a, a good point. When you're doing an evacuation uh, or considering an evacuation, in your planning, you should have defined already where certain areas go to. So, for example, if you need to evacuate an orthopedic ward, then there should be a sister ward elsewhere in the hospital that has the appropriate infrastructure to handle that. Uh, if you need to evacuate a resource-intensive area in terms of operational resources, electricity, water, and so on, and oxygen, like an ICU, then you need to have another area in the hospital that can receive those ICU patients. For example, in some of the Israeli hospitals, what they've done is they have wired oxygen and power and compressed air into the hallways. So certain wards can evacuate automatically into the hallway, leaving the ward space open to take in new patients. And what they've done is they've dedicated uh, staff that if we have to move people from Ward X out to clear space, you move with the patients to the hallway and that now becomes Ward X prime. Another option is if you have facilities nearby that are not hospital facilities, but for example, I mean, in Moscow, they've dedicated subway stations to be able to handle mass casualties, but that's because their subway stations are, are glorious. But if you have an auditorium, if you have uh, another hallway or a, a foyer that you can put a lot of people in, you may want to prepare that so you can move people from one part of the hospital that is no longer functional into another part that at least can be a staging area until such time as you can move them to the final destination, which is either back to where they were before or to some other area that is now ready for them. Okay, so, so far we've been talking about how to use your, your existing department to move around patients within your department or within your hospital in case of small disaster. Let's say you're in a situation where you either have such a small hospital that you need to evacuate the whole hospital or such a huge disaster that you need to evacuate a big hospital. Let, let's talk about total evacuation. So what do our listeners have to know about the process of evacuating your entire hospital, your entire emergency department? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a good question. And, and the problem with mass hospital evacuations is that this is one 
part of disaster response, which is very difficult for us to ever simulate with real patients. So chances are, if you ever have to do this, it will be your first time. And you have to accept the fact it might not go smoothly. But the reality is the emergency department is going to likely take the lead in this. So it's important as emergency physicians, we have a a rough game plan. Uh, We're the ones most familiar with EMS. And uh, generally, the emergency department is located on the ground floor. So it makes natural sense that's going to become the clearing area for the hospital. And just like we talked about earlier with triage, generally you have some sort of approach where you take the sickest and most critical patients who are resource intensive and get them to the safest location first. And then moving down in order of priority, um, moving people by the most appropriate form of transport. So for example, when the Fort McMurray Hospital, the Northern Lights Hospital was evacuated, critical patients were all moved by EMS, advanced life support units were called in, and other people were moved by bus, by by transit bus uh, with nurses with portable oxygen tanks, and, and, and some even evacuated by private vehicle once all the buses were, were used up. And just for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Fort McMurray disaster, what, what exactly happened there? Yeah, so the Fort McMurray wildfire, which happened almost a year to the day, was uh, one of the largest uh, natural disasters in Canadian history. And the entire city of Fort McMurray, over 80,000 people had to be evacuated, including their, their regional hospital. All the, so it was a full hospital evacuation. You know, in terms of North American examples, Katrina is probably something that uh, we could look at. You know, those hospitals, they all had to shelter in place. There was no options. They looked for resources and assistance. There were so many obstacles to even getting landing strips and so forth and even getting the help in. I think any hospital that's ever faced with such a a catastrophe is going to shelter in place. And the delays in getting the assistance that they need is likely going to lead to a lot of deaths. And, And there were people actually charged with murder under those conditions. They were... You know, I don't know the exact details, but from the sounds of it, they had to let certain people die and they wanted to do it humanely. And any one of us could be faced with a situation. We don't think we're third world, but it doesn't take a whole lot to reduce us to what we would consider third world conditions, which is just, you know, austere conditions and our ability to deliver our normal quality of care has just vanished. So... That's what I think would happen in, in a disaster that requires a hospital evacuation. And I think also in Japan, a lot of the hospitals chose to just shelter in place. And when they did move patients, they actually had a greater loss of life. And those that didn't actually had a higher survival rate because the people that you move that are critically ill can't tolerate those transfers. And so they're better off taking the risk many times just staying in place and hoping not to be taken out of those conditions, but that somebody will come and deliver the resources so they can try to stabilize the patient so that if they really have to leave because the structure is about to fall down around their heads, that they are able to do so safety. But there are certainly going to be times, if it ever came to that, where lives are going to be lost and we're going to be faced with humanely allowing people to die because otherwise you can just stop the care and they're going to die no matter what. That's a much worse way to die. So sometimes it's tough to make the decision between leaving the patient in the same spot and evacuating them or transferring them. Uh, I imagine that there's a lot of logistics involved in transferring patients for that individual patient. Can you just go through some of those logistics and maybe some tips on on how to make that transfer as smooth as, smooth as possible? Sure. First of all, when we determine who has to be evacuated as opposed to some patients may just get an early discharge, and we should think about that, not everyone in the hospital has to be relocated. 
For those who are being transferred, we have to look at what their their needs are, because there are some services that we're going to have to be able to maintain during an evacuation. And the classics being ventilation, sedation, analgesia, those things we have to control. And those patients are going to need extra resources, both in the transfer and on reception. The other thing is you need to make sure that your receiving site is able to handle the information uh, and the patient. And when we're sending a patient, we're not just sending the person and their care, but we're sending their information. So if you're dealing with a multi-site facility that shares an electronic medical record, that makes life easy. But more often than not, even within one city in Hamilton, the hospitals don't all have the same information system, so data doesn't cross over easily. We need to be able to transfer information reliably so the patient is trackable, And we need to be able to make sure that that information is connected to the correct patient because the chaos that can occur is that three patients arrive all at once in uh, one vehicle and there are three medical records. How do we make sure that they attach to the right people? The other thing is, as we're decanting the patients, we should be decanting the staff. So we shouldn't be left with a hospital with all of our staff there and no patients left. So part of our plan has to be How do we move our staff so that the bulk of our staff is with the bulk of the patients uh, and this, the appropriate skill set is with the appropriate sk- uh, group of patients? So, for example, uh, when all your ventilated patients have moved, your RTs should have gone over with them. And throughout that, obviously, we have to think about special needs for patients such as the pediatric, the psychiatric. Are you a forensic facility? Do you need to have guards Are there patients who pose risk to the staff on transfer or to the receiving facility? So those are special transport needs you might want to consider, and that'll be unique to your patient population. But generally speaking, you want to make sure you maintain the services they're receiving in hospital during transfer and at the other side, and that the data transfers with them and the appropriate staff transfers with them. So I was just going to say as a, I am a critical care transport physician and the movement of these patients is incredibly tedious, requires a, a special vehicles and many times you cannot just move with random kind of equipment, it has to have equipment that matches the vehicle in which they're transferred, it has to have people familiar with the use of that equipment, it can't just be done by anybody If you're in a hurry, fine, it's just bag and go. But the loss of life in this kind of transport situation where it's rushed and not sort of done carefully, you can see why people shelter in place for as long as possible and try to really reduce the number of transports they have to do because there's just not a lot of resources to do these types of transports. I agree. And and the experience we've had in Alberta with the floods in 2013, we had many communities all impacted by flooding at the same time. And some of our community hospitals were faced with the decision of, you know, they had water coming in the front doors of the hospital. Do we evacuate? Where's the threshold to evacuate? And again, it speaks to the importance of us thinking outside just our hospital silos. So we had one example of one community hospital that decided on its own just to evacuate based on the fact that there's a bit of water coming in their front door. And had they reached out to the broader community and the larger uh, kind of response that was underway with the municipality, they would have found out that they're actually the highest point in town. So anywhere else they went uh, would have was worse. And uh, by them deciding to evacuate, they created a huge draw on resources and used up all the ambulances in that, in that area to do their evacuation, which in the after-action report was found to probably be unnecessary. So it's important when you're making these decisions to, to reach outside and try and get as much situational awareness as you can, because certainly evacuation is always our last option. 
fact, they should never have been allowed to do that. There mm-hmm. should have been somebody overarching to say, not going to happen. <laughs> should have been. I can yes. just imagine Lori saying, I would have been. Not yeah. happen. <laughs> but ambulance <laughs> guys are not going to be there to do that. So. <laughs> Let's review here the ED evacuation and transport considerations in the natural disaster situation like a flood, for example. First, you need to get a sense of the magnitude of the natural disaster and whether or not it's contained. Because you need to know how much of it's impacted other hospitals in your region so that the hospitals that are most devastated by the natural disaster are the ones that evacuate and the hospitals that are least hit by the natural disaster can accept some of those patients. Or... If the whole region is devastated, it might be a better option to shelter in place, especially if you deem the risk of a long-distance transfer to be high. Now, for those who are transported out of your ED, you need to prioritize the sickest patients first and make sure that all the resources needed for those patients are available during transport and at the receiving end. Things like ventilation, sedation, and analgesia are often top priorities. You even need to think about simple things like making sure the complete and correct medical record is attached to the right patient for transport. And you also need to consider any special staff requirements, like security staff for at-risk psychiatric patients, for example. Now, what about the question of where the patients get evacuated to? Well, you should have a predetermined location for evacuated patients in your disaster planning handbook so that you don't have to waste time deliberating over the evacuation destination. On to case number three. You're stuck working the evening shift during a big hockey playoff game in your city. A colleague of yours who made it to the game texts you a photo of a packed subway station near the arena a few blocks away, describing how they've never seen it that busy before. Half an hour later, you hear a commotion in the waiting room and pop your head out of an exam room to see the waiting room full of frantic people vomiting, running to the washrooms with tears pouring down their faces. And your resident turns to you and he says, this looks like some kind of muscarinic disaster. They've all got sludge symptoms. So what are some of the considerations for safety in managing contaminated patients in general? Well, first thing I think you need to do is somebody needs to take control of that room figure out who is actually sick and separate them immediately as best you can. And uh, I think your first consideration is protect your staff and everybody else who's not affected so that they are not secondarily contaminated. Because if you fail to do that, you are just simply not going to be able to provide care. So most places like do not have the capacity to instantly start decontamination. Most places probably don't know where their PPE is for a chemical event. And so you have to use your brains. And the question is, whoever's at the front desk actually know, and if you've just popped your head out, do you understand what to do when you see that type of situation? So if anybody's walked in, you know that they're ambulatory. You just need to tell them to stop where they are, to follow you if they can, uh, without touching them, isolate them, get them modesty aside to explain to them they have to take their clothes off, give them a towel, a towel off, they put on a gown. You take them somewhere, if they're off-gassing in any way, that they get adequate ventilation so they don't compound their exposure or the exposure of anybody else. But you can do all of that without PPE. But you've got to just 
know that you can do that and that you don't have to have a essentially a gas mask or a chemical suit. You can do those types of things with those patients. That's what they do in Syria. If you look at the newsreels, people exposed to nerve agents, the medical staff, they're wearing actually N95s, which probably provide basically no protection and simple gloves. But if you don't touch them, you have enough protection because you're not going to get contaminated. But this requires knowledge. The question is, do we as a merge staff have that kind of knowledge to recognize a chemical event? Everybody you've invited to talk probably do. I'm not so sure about the rest of people in the emergency department. What are some of the clues that there's some sort of chemical hazardous disaster? Um, You said, you know, sometimes it's difficult to even pick this up in the first place. So what should we be on the lookout for? Multiple people presenting with the same complaints in a very close period of time. So just like you described, coming from a mass gathering type of event or some sort of uh, public transit, those would be favored targets for terrorists. You could think back to your carbon monoxide. A whole family comes out of the house and they're all sick and uh, nauseated. And it, they were perfectly well like 20 minutes ago. Well, you know that that's not from what the lasagna they ate that grandma cooked. You know, it's it's something that's happened. So you have to have that same sort of vigilance. Absolutely. I just wanted to clarify something about protecting yourself in these kinds of disasters. So as long as you're not touching these patients... For the most part, you're okay. And initially, it's okay just to direct people to declothe, towel off, and yeah, direct to people into, isolate into isolated from the rest. sections. Yeah, wherever you have that. It could be your ambulance, but like take them outside. These guys are walking in. If they're being brought in, you got another problem. In different cities, they're supposed to be decontaminated. But if they, if the EMS does not have the decontamination capacity or the hot, a fire doesn't, you're going to end up with a contaminated patient coming to your department. That's a real threat to everybody. And that's where you still, you have to do what you don't want to do. Your natural instinct is to dive in there and put hands on and try to treat these patients. But in this situation, this is what you don't do. You even let them die if you have to, but you cannot risk you or your staff to help them in those situations. This is not necessarily a terror event. My local greenhouse sells malathion, which is an organophosphate. So we don't need to have terrorism to have this stuff accidentally exposing people. Opal, India was not a terror event. It was an industrial accident because people are far more silly than they are malicious. And the odds of an accident are a lot higher than waiting for someone to actually attack you. I should add, by the way, if even before patients get to you, if you get a report in the absence of trauma of a large number of fatalities at a scene, then you need to think about a chemical exposure because there's not much else that will bring down a whole number of people. And in fact, in some of the EMS terror literature, they talk about something called a forward body line. So if you see a whole line of bodies one spot onwards, then that's an area that's considered a hot zone And you shouldn't go in there without at least considering how you're going to protect yourself, either by non-contact or by PPE. Yeah, so a biological indicator. I think Laurie hits on a great point, which is scene safety is going to be the most important thing here, protecting yourself and protecting the staff. And in the initial phase, you don't know exactly what they're contaminated with. It's true if it's a a vapor exposure and and just purely gas that uh, those people likely don't need to be decontaminated. But you don't know, and you also don't know where the exposure is coming from. So a lot of hospitals with an unknown mass event like this will also shut off the ventilation systems in their hospital and also 
into a back to that defend in place idea to um, shut off circulation within the hospital and, and, and do various things like that to, to protect the facility as well. But knowing where your PPE is, is going to be the, the most important step there. If you like case examples, there was one in Ontario where uh, two workers were working with phenol. This is a very famous case, but uh, apparently one spilt and phenol is very deadly. One died right at the scene and one seemed to have some signs of life. I'm not sure, but the paramedics rushed in there, took this guy. Their gloves are melting as they're doing CPR and they and they are starting to get sick. They took him right into the emergency department. And it went through the intake, just as you were saying, it went in through the intake up to the OR. They got sick and everybody in the whole department actually got sick before they finally realized stop. And they had to take the body outside and cover it up. The fumes of it were so irritating and causing so many people to be sick. So a lot of what you're sort of describing as as rules that hospitals should have doesn't mean that they do have. It often takes events like this to remind them that there are things that vapors can spread through uh, air, uh, same with biologicals. Like during pre-SARS, I don't think anybody had a negative pressure room. Maybe they had one, but now post-SARS, we have air-locked emergency departments with lots of uh, negative pressure rooms, all of which which we never had uh, pre-SARS. At least we certainly didn't. I understand when you open up your hospital decontamination booklet or guideline that there's certain steps, there's hot, warm, and cold zones that you need to divide people up into. Can you just give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what those basic steps are and how you would divide up these patients for decontamination? Sure. So every hospital is going to have a, hopefully have a unique plan and how they're going to manage a contaminated patient. But there's some concepts which should carry through all of them. The first one is having your your personal safety and your staff safety being the most important thing. So knowing how to don proper personal protective equipment and when you need to wear it, how to uh, uh, effectively put that on safely. The next thing is to establish clear contamination zones. So the hot zone is an area where you've for sure got contaminated people, equipment and things. And nobody should enter the hot zone unless they're wearing the appropriate personal protective equipment. If you think of it as a series of, of donuts, the hot zone's in the middle. Around that is something called the warm zone. And the warm zone is also known as the contaminant uh, reduction zone. And that's where people are in PPE still, but they're working to clean the patients and decontaminate them to make them safe. Once somebody is decontaminated, then they can be moved into the cold zone where people can operate without personal protective equipment. And that's also the outer perimeter where you shouldn't allow anybody else into the area for fear of them also being contaminated. We call that secondary contamination. And that means that you can spread contamination throughout an entire emergency department or even an entire hospital. And you take one patient to now having multiple patients. So now that you've got these different zones, how do you actually decontaminate the patients? Yeah, so there's different kinds of decontamination. There's something called emergency decontamination, and that's just gross decontamination with lots and lots of water. We've probably heard this saying, the solution to pollution is dilution, and that holds true for most hazardous materials. Water is freely available and is the best uh, decon solution, generally speaking. So you can even get patients to help uh, with their own decontamination and get them to undress, which removes about 80% of 
most contaminants just by taking your clothes off and having a shower. So if you have a large group of people, you can get them to move through gross decontamination or do an emergency decontamination with a hose or something where, where you have to help them. For sicker patients, we have to do something called technical decontamination. And that would be patients who are maybe intubated or unable to help themselves or on a backboard, etc. And those people need to be methodically cleaned by a team of people who are wearing the proper personal protective equipment, and they'll go through uh, work from the hot zone through to the cold zone through a very regimented assembly line kind of system where people will clean them and scrub them down and remove all their clothing, change out medical equipment that they can. But that part takes uh, people who've had training and and know what they're doing. Uh, One of the pitfalls with many hospital plans is we assume that's going to be done by the fire department or by somebody else, and most times those agencies are going to be busy at the scene. So we do need to have some sort of capability at the hospital to do this ourselves. So I just want to comment on that. Uh, if we had a large volume, we wouldn't have the shower capacity. They've done lots of timings on people with portable tents. They usually take an hour. First of all, the most of them won't even know where they are. So it's going to take time. So most countries uh, also suffer the same or share the same problems. So they would simply isolate them, get them to strip down, give, throw them a bunch of towels and say towel off. They would do dry decon first as a, as the weight that they can do it and put on a clean clothing. And then eventually, if there is some way to get them to showers, they would, if it is warm enough, they might hose them off and so forth. But to actually expect the, the fancy decon line and all those types of things, people in PPE, that's probably going to be in certainly in in Canada at minimum probably several hour response and so people most probably wouldn't even get intubated if if they're that sick they would probably get some auto injectors if there's a CBRNE team with that equipment at the scene they wouldn't be mobile they would have to be treated at the scene they would be that sick enough I think really unusual for them to be that sick to actually get to the hospital they would have to get there by EMS and EMS is not supposed to bring a patient that's sick. They could by accident. And then really it's going to be, we're dealing with all of us being contaminated in some way, unless we can figure out very quickly how to protect ourselves. But I don't know about you, but I actually know where the equipment is in our department. I can tell you probably 99% of the rest would not. And we actually have a built-in shower, so we might be able to do something quicker, but we're using it for simulation. So we'd have to get all our simulation equipment up. So this type of event would really decimate us. But if we had the walking wounded or the walking exposed, I should say, I think we could handle that. But the key would be to recognize it for what it is. There are alternates to showering. Uh, There is uh, something called RSDL, which is the reactive skin decontaminant lotion. And there's a study that's going to be coming out of a French hospital in the near future where they've created an alternate plan where they do dry decontamination using Fuller's Earth and actually gave the patients that had them smeared on themselves. Now, this is nowhere near as uh, as functional, but in situations where you can't shower, again, 80% of your decon will be by getting your clothes off, and then we, we can look at other plans. And if we're not going to have a shower easily ready, then we should formalize a plan for no shower so at least we can prepare for what's going to be our reality. I think the important thing is knowing your system. And and as the theme that keeps coming up is knowing your facility's hospital emergency plan. And I think that's something we don't think of and we don't routinely uh, review. But uh, certainly in Alberta, we have a, I would say, fairly robust uh, system that involves uh, EMS, who are specially trained for hazmat medics, and then a standardized training program for all hospitals, which involves the triage nurses having a basic kit, which is available to them just with a quick mask that they put on and gloves 
gloves and they direct people to the pre-designated location in every hospital, which is the hot zone. And then all hospitals have to have their showers and those systems are, are kind of routinely tested and mandatory training for the emergency department staff to don level C, it's a level of protection, to don those protections and, and use their pappers and, and various uh, protective equipment. But the key is you have to all be playing from the same rule book. So where we run into difficulty is, you know, trying to improvise on the spot if uh, we haven't rehearsed these things ahead of time because they do take practice. One other thought is that we're all assuming patients need to be decontaminated at the hospital. That's not so. If we can reach out to the public, those patients who need to just bag their clothes and shower because they're not particularly ill can go home and do that. If we can divert them away from the hospital, that saves resources for truly sicker patients. And we know that not everybody who shows up at the hospital has actually been affected. There may be a number of those who actually are ill, but a lot of people will have either very minimal or no symptoms but feel the need to be decontaminated. And they can do that in their home as long as they have adequate instructions. Let's review the management of contaminated patients in a chemical disaster situation. You should expect a 5 to 1 ratio of unaffected to affected casualties. And there's several decontamination options. There's wet decontamination with water, dry decontamination, and applications of materials to the skin. So first, wet decontamination. They say that the solution to pollution is dilution. And the vast majority of decontamination can be achieved by gross decontamination. That's just removing contaminated clothes and taking a shower or getting hosed down. Consider keeping ambulatory patients outside the ED in portable tents for decontamination of a suspected biohazard. Now, if there's too many patients relative to showers or portable tents, consider isolating these patients for dry decontamination. And the simplest method for dry decontamination is simply to use hospital towels. Just instruct the patient to undress, place the contaminated clothes in a sealed bag, towel themselves off, and put on clean clothing until showers or portable tents are freed up for wet decontamination. So other options besides wet and dry decontamination include scraping, in which the bulk of contaminant is removed using a spatula or a tongue depressor. And scraping works best with viscous liquids and solids. Next, there's absorbent materials, such as the Fuller's Earth that Dr. Kolick was talking about, or the reactive skin decontamination lotion, uh, which none of us have stocks in, by the way. And then there's also adsorbent materials, as well as vacuuming or pressurized air. Remember that this is only for patients who are isolated. Now, for sicker patients who are not able to undress themselves, you might need to go to the full-out technical decontamination. Now, technical decontamination requires a team of trained personnel and personal protective equipment to perform an assembly line type of cleansing. Your hospital should have a technical decontamination plan. You should check that out to make sure that they do. Next up, Dr. Masaryk is going to give us her approach to airway management of the patient who has something like a suspected Ebola or SARS or multidrug-resistant TB. (laughs) 
So I, I think this is the essence of what emergency physicians and hospitals need to master. The other things we've talked about are less likely to happen. We now have drug-resistant TB. We have a high immigrant population in the country. Ebola didn't come to us, but it was very easy to see what the fear of just Ebola coming to this country caused. Part of it, certainly in the Toronto area, is it evokes that response of what happened in SARS where all of us who were practicing here at that time had colleagues or peers who were infected and were sort of held responsible for their own cause of infection because they didn't know how to use the equipment properly. But I can tell you that when SARS came, I didn't even know what an N95 was, and we were never fit tested for them. So this is truly something that people should know. And so this has really burned into my brain. The number one thing, if you are going to intubate any patient with a high-risk biological disease is you need to paralyze them. Because if they cough, your face is down there and it's going to be in your face. And that is probably how most people uh, or many people caught uh, SARS was during the intubation process. They didn't necessarily know the, the patients were agitated, they were struggling, they were hypoxic, and people were struggling to try to control them without paralyzing. They were trying to sedate them the way they might normally and all kinds of PPE was displaced. It, it became quite evident. In addition to PPE, you need to paralyze patients so they don't cough. You minimize the number of people in the room, so it should just be the intubator and somebody else with the medication. So it could be the RT who, or a nurse, but somebody who assists you that way. And you have uh, filters on the tube in, in addition to the appropriate PPE. Once you are also uh, have intubated them, you have a, a filter on the uh, tube so that there is no exhalation occurring when the tube comes off, when they have to change tubing or, and so forth. So those would be, I think, the main things, uh, proper PPE and paralytics. People also think that putting on the PPE is not a problem, but taking that PPE off is the highest risk because you tend to self-contaminate. And there's a method using a trained observer. So you should always have somebody who's in PPE, who's never had any contact, is watching. You do every absolute step and points out to you if you self-contaminate it so that you do do it properly. And the one thing that's not been added, it was added after sort of Ebola provoked all this revisitation of these things, is that uh, you should actually shower afterwards because, you know, we often just take the PPE off and then simply just carry on. But you should probably shower because it may have come up around your face or depending on the PPE that you have. All right. We actually uh, did uh, a little mini special episode after Ebola on how to don a PPE and how to take one off. It is a lot trickier than you think. If you do it 100 times, it's not so bad. But if you are doing it for the first time, knowing that you could contaminate yourself with something that could kill you, and then you could also transmit it to your family, then it becomes a whole new ball of, you know, a different kind of game of urgency and intensity. One other thing, if you're going to, prior to intubating them, use bronchodilators, I would really strongly suggest not nebulizing, because what you're doing is you're going to aerosolize all around them with secretions from them. So that is the time for an aero chamber and puffers. Really do not nebulize these patients. Yeah, and actually we didn't uh, do either of those during SARS. We went right to IM uh, Epi because it was shown that the spread was through nebulizers through and BiPAP, and those were became contraindicated during that period because you never knew who had actually SARS or did not have SARS. So it, it became a form of uh, using IM medications for bronchodilation. The other thing, this isn't a time for learners. This is a time for the most skilled 
intubator. I, and I do remember trying to convince an anesthetist because I, I was part of SARS operations. And it's okay. You're the best. You're the most skilled. We'll help you with the PPE. But he didn't want to do it because he's so frightened. So not only do they have to be the best, they have to be somebody who's comfortable with doing it in PPE. That actually probably often and certainly in the emergency department is going to fall to us. Although most of the cases of the spread were actually in the intensive care. They would get to the intensive care and then have to go on to be intubated. Don't bag the patient too as well. Anything that causes an aerosolization of the secretion. So you can use your nasal prongs for passive oxygenation. You can high flow on your face, but you wouldn't bag it. No BiPAP, uh, no uh, nebulizers. As Daniel said, if you need to bronchial dilate, you can use IM Epi. Okay. So just to review there, the do's are do paralyze, do protect yourself. The, the don'ts are don't bag, don't BiPAP, don't use anything with aerosolized, no nebulizers. And minimize the people in the room. So it should be two, not the usual crowd of audience. Oh, this is cool. Because I think uh, the one famous case, unfortunately, was at our hospital. One patient, one intubation infected seven people in the room and subsequently three more, I think. Or it was six in the room and three more for a total of nine within a matter of few hours. Those people who exposed got SARS. We've touched on the need for practice in disaster medicine a few times in the podcast so far. There's this great saying, we don't rise to the occasion, we fall to the level of our training. So disaster medicine management certainly needs a lot of practice. How do you suggest to our listeners that they hone their disaster medicine skills? Well, I think one of the first things is just like anything in medicine, you'll, you'll never make the diagnosis if you don't know anything about the disease. So you need to understand what disasters are and what sort of inherent problems come with disasters. And then in your own local practice, I, I think we've identified there's you know some big system issues that come up in, in a disaster. But to keep it practical in terms of what you can do as an individual clinician, it's being familiar with your hospital's emergency plan. And if you go through it, if it doesn't make sense, then that's an issue that needs to be brought forward. And also making sure that you know at an individual level where your emergency equipment is located, where's your hazmat equipment. Where are your, you know, flashlights, fire extinguishers, basic uh, emergency supplies in your department? Uh, there's lots of opportunities for training to get more training in disaster medicine. You can take IMS or ICS training. You can take uh, the AHLS course, Advanced Hazmat Life Support, which gives you some familiarity with how to deal with contaminated patients. There's the basic disaster life support course as well, which is now available online that you can take. Um, so there's a few different training opportunities for people that are interested. I would encourage also that you practice with the people you're going to do this with and at the site you're going to do this with because as much as you take courses, and I agree a thousand percent with what Joshua was saying, until you practice it with your own team, you don't know where your own problems are going to come up and you don't know where your own weaknesses are. And I'll match your saying with another one from the Army, difficult training makes for easier battles. So you really want to have exercises where things go wrong because that way you'll sort out where your problems are. And the irony is that we know if you are uh, well prepared for disasters, that improves your general efficiency. So a lot of the problems the hospitals are presently facing with overcrowding and so on might be less problematic if they took some time to work on their disaster plans but because of the problems, their focus is elsewhere, so they're not working on their disaster plans. 
Yeah, I think this has to be a requirement of training. So it has to be embedded in residency programs, has to be embedded at the student level. So the the nursing, physician assistants, uh, it has to be part of their training and that exercising, not just the tabletop exercise for a few administrators. Clinicians are the ones that bear the brunt of these surges and have to manage them. We have to be part of these exercises and that should be part of accreditation. The exercises are better defined. It should almost be like an Olympic cycle. So we do uh, some local exercises, then we build up to a provincial exercise, national or even international, but they should follow a process that's a, a required training so that we all understand the same things. But I also agree with Daniel, you have to practice with your team. I don't know if I should say this or not. I'm not a big fan of incident management. I'm not a fan of incident command. These are firefighter kind of notions for wildfires and military types of processes. And even the military, to a certain extent, have moved away from this. They've realized that small, effective teams that are, are cohesive and know how to adapt to have good situational awareness and how to base their decisions on information do better than somebody following some sort of systematic plan or process. Uh, it's better that you are creative and adaptive and that we should be teaching more about how to do that from a health system perspective. I don't think we encourage enough creative behavior or adaptive behavior or thinking more innovatively. And it often takes a disaster, unfortunately, to push us to do that. If you understand this, you understand how to do your day-to-day practice better because it is totally about efficiency, thinking out of the box and being creative about how you can do more with less. And we are there now, day-to-day. It's just that I think when we actually look at it as people interested in disaster medicine, we realize it. It would just be nice if more people realized it. But the simulations are almost labs where you can try these ideas for efficiency. So they're worth... Wow, uh, things not waiting for just these disasters to occur, but maybe thinking about these simulations as labs where you could try better ways to do more with less. And the leadership part is really important too. That's where where I think as emergency physicians, that's really the biggest protective mechanism that we have and the biggest skill set that we bring to a disaster is we're used to running teams. We're used to being co-team leaders. And it's those same crisis leadership skills that are going to be key in a disaster. And I would add to all of that that you should play with your disaster plan. Get a chance to use it for other stuff. Wait for mass gatherings, any other event where you can actually deploy it. Don't wait for the disaster to deploy it because that's when you'll see where you can do something different. You might come up with an idea because something worked in a concert when you thought, here's a good time for me to deploy the plan and let's see how I can use it in a controlled setting. Yeah, we should own it. Well, thank you all so much for joining me. I must admit that this has been the highest yield podcast that I've ever recorded because I knew next to nothing about disaster medicine before uh, before we started this. So I've learned an enormous amount. I hope the listeners will as well. I'm certainly going to take some courses and I'm going to participate in Toronto's local disaster simulations. And I encourage everyone, wherever they are, to find out where the closest disaster simulation is and to really get involved. If we all get involved in learning more about disaster medicine, we'll all be more prepared when that disaster hits. And unfortunately, eventually, 
wherever you are, you will be hit by a disaster. Another day streaks the skies with blue Another day don't know what I'll do Another day says come on let's go Another day I'll say I don't know Another day puts it on my plate Another day I'll push it away And another day says it all can't change Another day I'll just stay the same Well it could be the gifts, it could be the tales Could be the way they make me hate Could be the crowds and all their voices Could be there's just too many choices Another day moves ahead in time Another day I'm one more behind And another day shimmers oh so high Another day's gone and where was I? Well it could be the gifts, could be the takes Could be the way that make me Could be the crowds and all their voices Could be there's just too many choices Could be the road goes on too far Could be I'm waiting on my star Could be the world and all its schemes Don't have the room for one more dream 